Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be your host, and I'm here in studio again with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon. And as you know, if you've been tracking along with us, we have been covering Ancient Heresies Revived. Last week, we covered a fancy-sounding word called monarchianism, and that's basically modalism. What we're looking at today is actually related Mm -hmm. to that error and some would say it's actually the polar opposite or at least a reaction to it and that is arianism Mm -hmm. what we're going to be doing as we delve into these doctrines is trying to not just talk about what they are but to also give you a solution for them now last week's solution if you haven't listened to it definitely something that you want to take a look at But this week's solution is a little bit different, but it still stands on the same general ground. But that being said, Brian, how was your class in college this week? Well, Luke, it went very well. And we are still in the 20th century, you know, 1900s. We looked at uh, the Jesus people, Calvary chapels. We looked at other various movements that began Mm -hmm. um, in this century or last century, actually, be it, um, uh, no, we're still in this century. Anyway, my, I don't know what century I'm in, Luke. <laughs> that my, my brain is all over the place. But we looked at Jesus people, Mergent Church. We looked at seeker-sensitive mm-hmm. churches. We looked at the rise of um, various liberal movements and so on and so forth. And then we concluded with the Second Vatican Council. So oh. it was a it was a chock full class, and at the end we always talk about our our original source material. And in in the modern era, we're looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So it was really good. How about yours? Well, we actually took another group out to Cottonwood Mall, mm-hmm. and while we didn't see any folks converted last week, there was much greater conversational activity on the part of the students Mm -hmm. to be able to share the gospel. And that's one of the things I laded them with when we were going in. I said, one of the things you want to make sure that you're doing, regardless of what the results are, is to not think about the results. I said, focus genuinely on the person that's in front of you and be faithful to share the gospel Mm -hmm. and leave the results to the Lord. And so it was a good lesson because they were coming in off a high of the three conversions. And I'm thinking... Maybe that'll happen this week. Maybe it won't. But we learned some important things about ourselves. We learned some important things about the realities of witnessing is sometimes you cast your net mm-hmm. and you get no fish. Mm-hmm. And that's okay mm-hmm. because you're not judged on how many fish you catch. You're judged on whether or not you're faithful to cast the net. That's right. That's exactly right. It's beautiful. And I love the practical ministry side of it, Luke. So bravo. Well, now I, I need to ask you. Before I give the history uh, foundations of Arianism and really looking at who Arius was, what are some of these little tidbits about Arianism that our listeners should know? So the first one that I almost mentioned right off the bat, but I thought, no, I'm going to save it for this, is this term Arianism is to be distinguished from Arianism. You say, well, what do you mm-hmm. mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, this Arianism is A R I A N I S M. So this refers to a doctrine that has to do with the Trinity and the deity of Christ and is technically his subordination. The other Arianism, like the Arian Brotherhood mm-hmm. and supremacies and things like that, that is not what this is about, right? right? And that makes a big difference here. Number two, 
this doctrine was started by someone within the church, mm-hmm. unlike Marcion, which we talked about with Gnosticism, who came to the church, really, and then began to teach his doctrine later on. And some of the other heresies that we've looked at, they were sort of outsiders who became insiders who were then outsiders. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of not how this started. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of what Paul said in Acts, where he said, some people are going to rise up from within you, mm-hmm. speaking of the church, and mislead many. Number three, there's a common thread here between so many of the restoration groups that we've talked about before, these groups that think they have to go back and the church lost the plot 2,000 years ago because of Constantine and all the groups that revive this heresy fall right into that trap. And so this is a part that becomes current because of the many, quote, restoration movements that seek to restore doctrine that was actually condemned by the church under the auspices of becoming more like the church in the New Testament. Fourthly, we're going to cover some terms this time that I just want to throw out there. There's more than these two, but this will give you something to chew on before we get more into the meat, and that is there's homoousianism, so homoousianism, Mm -hmm. and then there's homoousianism. And I'm truncating that, not because that's how it's pronounced, but so that you can hear the difference. Homoi and homo. One means similar, one means the same. And so uh, these are terms that we're going to be discussing as we go through that describe the difference in doctrine as articulated by the church in some of its councils. Mm -hmm. Hang on to those terms if you can, because they're a little hard to take in the first drive-by. The last thing, which I always try to save something humorous or interesting, is that Arius, the fellow who is responsible for the propagation of this doctrine, he would make up songs, these little ditties that he would do that would try to capture his idea of subordination. Right. And I'm not even kidding. And so one of the one of the sources that I have, I'll say this, and I'm going to hand it over to Brian, but it, it actually captured a ditty that was attributed to him. And he would go along and he would capture people in these false dilemma questions such as, you know, excuse me, ma'am, this infant you're carrying, did this child exist before you conceived it and gave birth to it? No, of course not. What kind of absurd question is this? Well, how about the Son of God? Did he exist before the Father begot him? Hmm, I guess that's also absurd. Great answer. I wrote a song about it. Want to hear it? It goes like this. (laughs) He says, the one without beginning established the Son as the beginning of all creatures, and having fathered such a one, he bore him as a son for himself. He, the son, possesses nothing proper to God in the real sense of propriety, for he is not equal to God, nor yet is he of the same substance. Mm -hmm. And so by this little trap that he would use, he would then drop this ditty that he wrote on these people, these unsuspecting people, give them a catchy way to remember false doctrine. And of course, for us, I would say this. This means that people are very receptive to the lyrics of songs, whether consciously or subconsciously, They inculcate them. So be careful what music you're listening to and what it's teaching you. Mm -hmm. And and, and the the reality is it is a very strong strategy to use music to help teach principles for good or for ill. And Arius used them for an unorthodox teaching, but we could use them for... An orthodox and teaching in the biblical teaching. <laughs> hopefully, yes. That was a great. Those were great five points, you know. And I, I loved your your distinguishing between 
Arianism and Arianism, what we would know as various segregations and white supremacy and so on and so forth. And though white supremacy is not necessarily a religious movement, it does have connotations that too are false teachings. So, so though, though they're different in their historical scope, they're similar in that they're both promoting false ideology concerning the Bible. But Excellent. neither here nor there. When we talk about the ancient form of Arianism, um, really it's just defined as an unorthodox branch of Christianity, something that came from the early church, and it held that Jesus was not one with God, and he was created by God. That's really it in, in a nutshell. So it has to deal with both what we know as Christology, you know, the nature of who Christ was, but it also has the larger implications of Trinity, you know, about the Godhood um, that we've talked about over and over. So Arius's basic premise was this, that God, who alone, God the Father here, God who alone is self-existent, is immutable. So only God can be eternal, you know, in a sense. And so he concludes, which you said with your little song ditty, which is great, (laughs) is that Jesus is not self-existent. Therefore, he cannot be immutable. He cannot be like God the Father because the Godhead is unique. It can, you know, he cannot be shared with Christ. And I'm sure you're going to get to this later, Luke. Some of the modern um, expressions of this are with Jehovah Witness and others uh, of that nature. But when we talk about Arianism, we have to go to a founder, like so many other groups we've talked about with Gnosticism, be it Marcion or Valentinus or, you know, um, all the others. But like the others, there isn't a whole, whole bunch. But interestingly enough, we have enough through some references and such to get a general timeline. So the dates I'm going to give our listeners are not definitive. They're circas. So they're, they're around the time. And a right. circa is usually five or ten years, you know, give or take. So we think Arius, the founder of Arianism, was born circa 250, could be 255, in what we would know modern-day Libya or thereabouts, somewhere kind of on the, the borderlands area of, of Libya. And we do think he was brought up, as you pointed out at the beginning, within the church meaning he would have been considered in that early church dynamic, broadly speaking, within the Christian fold. So he was brought up in the church. And so much so that he went to what we would say today a Christian school, um, an exegetical school in Turkey. And he studied under a guy by the name of, of Lucian. And and let me just pause here, Luke, because for most of our listeners, they're just going, okay, he, his teacher was Lucian. But for historians, as you know, Lucian was kind of one of those gray area guys. At times, he seemed to be very orthodox. Other times, you're scratching your head and go, what, you know, where does this guy stand? So most historians and scholars would put Lucian as kind of like an outsider. He was He was sort of within the Orthodox camp, but not always. The bottom line is the area studies under a teacher that's kind of hard to pinpoint. Um, and interestingly enough, during this time frame, the rise of what we would know as the monastic movement. Today, we call them monks. But this, this monastic movement 
along with uh, a suspect, you know, teacher is really what Arius was bathed in. You know, he was he was educated, schooled in this. Interestingly enough, we do think that Lucian, Arius's teacher, was in, influenced by Paul of Samosota, which also dealt, he, he was really suspect in that we don't really know if he clearly understood what we would know the biblical understanding of the nature of Christ. So it, it dealt with the humanity of Christ. So all, I mentioned this because all these factors, all these things are influencing Arius's thought process and, and his life. So we think between 275, 280, he's studying, he's going to this Christian school where Lucian's his teacher. By 300, so probably sometime in the 390s, he shows up and he's around Alexandria in northern Egypt. So he leaves Turkey area and he goes south and he shows up in Alexandria. And for our historians, our student scholars, they also understand that Alexandria was also a hotbed of Gnosticism. And other crazy ideologies. <laughs> it was a hotbed for a lot of things. So Arius shows up in this city that is really known for a lot of unorthodox teaching. And again, he comes from an, a, a teacher who's he, he's probably bringing more unorthodox teachers. So according to one source we have, one ancient source, that in Alexandria he sides with one of these unorthodox teachers called Melatius or Melatius, depending on who you, you know, some <laughs> right. say tomato, so some say tomato. <laughs> and interestingly enough, it was over the Donatist controversy. And for those listeners who are going, what are you talking about? What's the Donatist <laughs> controversy? Well, it was the readmission of those who had denied Christianity during times of persecution. So some churches were going, yeah, you're forgiven, grace, come back into the church. Other churches were going, no, you denied Christ. And Christ said, if you deny me, you deny me. So you have no part in this church, you're, you're damned. Later on, fast forward, Augustine will kind of put an end to it and, and talks about God's grace and so on and so forth, that if they're truly repentant, you could bring them back into the fold. But what happens is Arius sides with this fella, Melatius, and those who denied Christ under the fear of Roman torture. And Melatius was kind of saying, no, nah, you, you, really, you really can't bring him back in. So under Melatius's auspices, over his oversight, he ordains Arius. So again, back to your point, Luke, that Arius is firmly in the church probably grew up in a you know a general christian household that we would know studied at a quote unquote christian school even though the teacher was suspect and so on and so forth and just a note on that again for the listeners when it comes to the donatists as far as we know there was no other theological difference between them and the orthodox church at the time it was just that one issue as far as we know That's right being ordained in the donatist church was willing to be received by the orthodox but the donatists 
would not accept anyone who was ordained by someone who had previously rejected or had delivered scriptures to the persecutors. Yeah. It was a one-way street, it, but that was that was about it. Yeah, exactly. It, it's what we would call in modern v- vernacular, you know, it was more of a sociological difference than a theological difference. Right. It was the sociology of the church of not allowing certain people in the church versus theological issues. But what we find with Arius is not only did they have the sociological, but there were some theological issues as well. So he's ordained. He becomes a presbyter and what we would kind of know an early monk and then, of course, a priest. So he's within the church. So Arius is within the church. But what's interesting is we have record by 311, by 311, he's excommunicated by Peter of Alexandria. So we think his excommunication is not because of his aberrant views regarding Christ yet. We think he's excommunicated because he supported Meletius. So again, this Donatist controversy was alive and well in this time frame. And again, just to reiterate, it wasn't necessarily theological. It was more sociological on, on that level. But by 318, the tide changes, circa 318, because Arius as now an ordained clergyman, starts teaching something that catches the eye and the ear of Orthodox believers. And that is what we now know as Arianism, essentially that Jesus was not divine. Hmm. And this, interestingly enough, Luke, as you're aware, as a historian, 318 was also the year that Athanasius, the staunch defender of orthodox teaching, writes on the incarnation. So on one hand, you have Athanasius, who is firmly behind in teaching that Christ was both human and divine. And then you have, on the other hand, Arius, who is coming out and saying, no, Jesus was not divine. He he was a good human moral teacher, true, the son of God in a very loose way, but he wasn't the you know, the third person or the second person of the Trinity. So Arius's views start catching on, believe it or not, with some. Because let's be honest, Luke, the duality of Christ's nature is, is 100% God and 100% man. Is It can be difficult for some. And then when you add that equation into the Trinity, it even becomes more mind-boggling. Of course, we could give simple mathematics of one divided by one divided by one divided by equals one. So three ones equal one. So mathematically, we, show, we could show it with geometry, three corners of a triangle, but one triangle. But let's be honest, it's still, we we could... We, we have could, no human equivalent for it, what it is. Exactly. There's still a level of mystery and a level of profound um, understanding. We may we may understand, you know, the basic math. We may understand, but we don't fully comprehend it. Let's just be serious. So we understand, but we don't fully comprehend. So Arius's views pick up some steam, so much so that by the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325, called by the Emperor Constantine, who for all accounts and purposes, we don't think he was a believer at this time, but his mother was, and he didn't want to kill his mother, and he didn't want to, <laughs> he didn't want to persecute Christians anymore. So he basically calls the Nicene Council with uh, his scholarly friend Eusebius, who was a Christian, and says, hey, go figure out what you Christians believe And tell me what books of the Bible are those, because those are going to be the standard repertoire, if you will, 
for the Christian faith, and then we'll we'll really start helping define that type of stuff. So in 325, when the Council of Nicaea was called, one of the things that they condemned as non-biblical teaching was Arius's views. And so the divinity of Christ was clearly articulated in the Nicene Council, and Arius's views were condemned. So you would think that would put an end to it. It doesn't. Because, as we said, there was that period of you know, 10, 15 years where his, his views were really able to take a foothold. And where they took a foothold was actually in Northern Europe. But you have some input, Luke. Yeah. So it's interesting. You mentioned Eusebius, who didn't really help things. And I don't know. I imagine you're going to bring that up. But there's, there's some controversy that swirled around oh, him yeah. in the same way that Lucian and Paul of Samosota. He's much more respected as one of the church historians, of course. But right. Not a lot of people understand his association with Arius. Or, oh, unquestionably. Or, or, or that. So I'm going to let I, I, you flesh that out. But I, yeah, I think I think without we could literally spend the rest of the program fleshing this out because Eusebius, yeah. you said, is a very important but also controversial. I think personally, if you were to put you know Eusebius in a corner and and make him say things, he probably would have been a lot more like, oh, this is what I believe. He probably scholars think maybe even leaned a little towards Arianism. He he maybe leaned that way. But because you had someone big in personality such as Athanasius and others who were very strong in supporting the dual nature of Christ, Arius is I, I mean excuse me, Eusebius today is looked at kind of a moderate. So if you had Athanasius as the the orthodox champion, and then on the other side you would have Arius they usually put Eusebius in the middle and say, oh, he was he was a moderate. But like I said, he probably leaned a little bit Arianism, but he was wise enough to go, I'm going to go with the majority rule. And the majority of the Nicene Council condemned Arianism. And, and as I was saying, you know, you would think that it it would be done, but it wasn't because there was enough teaching, there was enough people like Eusebius, others who who were adhering and grabbing onto his ideas. And so it caught on elsewhere, particularly in Northern Europe, what we would know as the Goths and Visigoths, or AKA the Germans, they they were really, they, they bought into it early on and were championed it. But what happens is by 337, because of that, there's a gentleman by the name of Constantinus, or Constantinus, different than Constantine, who openly embraces Arianism in the Eastern Church. So you have adherents in the Northern, particularly with the Germanic people, and you have adherents in the Eastern Church, and you would really start to think that Arianism, contrary to what happened at the Nicene Creed, Arianism may make a good run for it, but something happens in 361. And by the way, by 361, Arius is long deceased. He's off planet Earth, but his ideas are still present. And so Valentinian, an Orthodox, becomes the emperor, and he starts to enact Orthodox ideas over the whole of what we would say now modern Europe. And so because of Valentinian, this resurgence of Orthodox or Bible-believing ideology really makes inroad. So... By the time 
Theodosius becomes emperor and the Counts of Constantinople happens, they reiterate the decision of the Council of Nicaea and they reiterate the dual nature of Christ. 100% God, 100% man. And if you will, Arianism has its final nail in the coffin, at least in the early church, except with little pockets in the Eastern church and little pockets among the Germanic people. But by and large, the start of the Middle Ages, you know, 600 or so, it really is it really is an underground movement. It doesn't take any kind of prominent role, though I think an argument could be made with pockets of people, individuals who either A, adopted Arianism, or B, don't fully understand the biblical teachings of it, so they hailed by kind of this personal belief. Arianism was, was still alive, though in smaller pockets, but then, of course, resurfaced in our modern era with groups like Jehovah Witness and, and what have you. But that's a little bit of the history, and uh, I'm going to leave it at that, Luke, for you to unpack some of their beliefs and its correlation to the church. Well, definitely appreciate that, Brian. And, of course, there's much more to be said, as there's always much more to be said. One of the things I was going to throw in there was how that during this period of time, there was a lot of back and forth as a number of churches under the leadership of the Goths who had invaded Rome at that point, who were in Ravenna. Theodoric was one of the primary people. By all accounts, he was an Arian, but he was known for his moderation. Persecutions would happen where churches that were built by people of Arian ideas, a lot of the Gothic churches, they were ultimately destroyed. And if not destroyed, the ones that were preserved, really the artwork that depicted these various kings and queens who were adherents of Arianism, they ended up all being redone. And what's funny, in, in a book by Judith Heron, it's called Ravenna, she actually shows pictures of where sometimes the people that were the leaders, when they were redoing these intricate pieces of art on the wall, they would sometimes just put a curtain into the artwork itself and overlay and remove the original stones that had been used to create the previous image. But in some cases, they had left out a hand or a foot, and you can see it appended to the pillar or at the bottom of the curtain, which is quite humorous that they would leave that there. So you can see a curtain, but then you can still see people's hands and feet that are left over. Just to give you an idea of some of the extent to which they went to eradicate the Aryan tradition. Now, that being said, there are three groups that we're going to look at that are on the spectrum of this. One of them is now defunct. The other two are going strong. The first one, of course, is Mormonism. Now, if you recall what Brian had mentioned earlier, he said that this was the idea that Jesus Christ was created, and if created, he was therefore inferior to the Father. He was subordinate to the Father, and that's really the idea that Arius was putting out there, is the subordination of the Son, that he was not of the same substance as the Father, or essence of the Father, that he was completely separate in being, and that he was after the fact. And therefore, what they would say, and pardon the terms, but I've put them into the description on the podcast, so I want to define them, ontologically inferior, in other words, in his existence, he is inferior because he came into existence, whereas the Father never did. And then secondly, chronologically because he came into existence after the Father, he is not as, quote, as eternal 
unquote, as the father, and therefore does not share in some of his attributes. Now, Mormonism in particular, this comes from them, their own articulation of who Jesus is. They say this, and of course, we're not endorsing what they're saying by reading what they're saying. They say, like most Christians, Mormons believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the creator of the world. However, Mormons hold the unique belief that God the Father and Jesus Christ are two distinct beings. So here we go, all the way back 3rd and 4th century. When they say they're two distinct beings, that means that they disagree that the Father and the Son are of the same essence. They are not co-equal. And then they say, Mormons believe that God and Jesus Christ are wholly united, but do they say how? In their perfect love for us, but that each is a distinct personage with his own perfect glorified body. Now, boy, have they put some layers of smoothness on this. What they've just told you in this paragraph is that the Son and the Father are not equal with one another, and they do not share all of their attributes, but they they take a swipe at sort of trying to sound Trinitarian here in their language, although they are clearly not. They believe in the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, but boy, do they have different articulations. So they know they mention nothing here about Christ having been created, but if you dig further into their doctrine, they actually believe that he's what they would call the half-brother of Lucifer, having been fathered by God, and there are a lot of other disturbing things that are claimed. They believe that God the Father has a physical body and that he physically fathered Christ with Mary through the same method that human beings do, and that through that union, Jesus inherited supernatural traits from God, and this is how he came into possession of his godlike powers. I'm not making this up. This comes, much of this is articulated in the Mormon Doctrine and Covenants, section 130. And there's a number of tenets as part of that, but there's a couple here. John 14, 23, according to them, the appearing of the Father and the Son in that verse is a personal appearance. And the idea that the Father and the Son dwell in man's heart is an old sectarian notion and is false. So they're saying that because Jesus and the Father both have a physical body, of course they're not dwelling in people's hearts. And it says in tenant 22 of section 130, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost has not a body of flesh and bones, but is a personage of spirit. Were it not so, the Holy Spirit could not dwell in us. They believe that the Spirit is also a person, but they do not believe him to be any more equal with the Father than Jesus is. So when they talk about them being distinct persons, when we speak of God being manifest in three persons that are completely distinct from one another in their identity, but not in their nature, not in their essence, not in their attributes. That's not what they're meaning when they say this. They're saying they're completely distinct and that they do not share deity in the same sense. There is a hierarchy of deity based on the same type of articulation that Arius gave in that the son was not even in existence or if he was in some form of pre-existence, it certainly wasn't in equality with the Father. They actually view him as a God, which is very strange. And we'll talk about that more toward the end after we've covered a couple of these other ones. So they believe that there's God the Father and that Jesus Christ is a God who is in a 
inferior station to God Almighty, the Father, having been created through his interactions with Mary, his being the Father. He was fathered as a child, and in this he has some level of equality with God, but not a co-equality as such is inferior, but is still to be worshipped as deity, just not the supreme deity. Now, it says this as well. Mormons believe that all men and women ever to be born, including Jesus, lived with God as his spirit children before this life. So here's sort of how they get around it. They believe in what's called a spiritual pre-existence, that there's these spirit babies that are with God, these souls, as it were, that are simply waiting for a human body to be created here on earth through the process of earthly procreation in which they may inhabit. So that's, that's their belief. I'm not making that up. It says, God wanted each of us to come to earth to gain experience, learn, and grow to become more like him. Now, you'll find in these types of statements, folks, a similarity between all of the different doctrines that we've talked about up to this point. Because when you go off the beaten track, you get into some really strange weeds. But even though the weeds are strange, it's sort of the same weed patch that everybody who goes off the track ends up in. There are some inevitabilities to the errors of discussing the non-equality of Christ with God. You end up having to say generally the same thing. If you remember the Scientology episode that we did and Ron Hubbard's conception of the idea of the Thetan, a soul who was sent here by the Zanu, blown up by hydrogen bombs, trapped in a spiritual state, and was simply waiting for human bodies into which they could go to live their lives. And his courses that he teaches are to restore that person to a place of knowledge of what their original station was. Now, with that in mind, one can see pretty clearly where he probably got this idea. God wanted each of us to come to earth to gain experience, learn, and grow to become more like him. But he also knew his children would all sin, die, and fall short of his glory. And we would need a savior to overcome our sins and imperfections and reconcile us with God. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ was chosen to be the Savior long ago during our pre-mortal life with God. So there's all these spirit babies running around in heaven with the realm of God, which Joseph Smith describes as a giant Urim and Thummim, whatever that's supposed to mean. And God, I guess, by Urim and Thummim, by casting lots of some kind, chooses Jesus to be the one who gets to be the Redeemer. There's nothing at that point, apparently, that distinguishes him from any other pre-existent soul that dwells with God. And through his faithfulness to the mission that God gave him, he becomes the Son of God, who then is the conduit for all others who will follow. Which, again, the pre-existence and eternality of Christ are obviously denigrated by this, to say nothing of his co-equality with God. This is all based on Arian doctrine. Now, granted, it's a unique take on Arian doctrine, but the underpinnings are there that Jesus from the beginning was distinct from God in person, but not just person, in substance, that he was not divine. And then it says, we shouted for joy when we were presented with God's glorious plan for his children. So in the days in the Old Testament where it talks about the sons of God shouted for joy, which are almost certainly referring to angels, Joseph Smith sees this as being pre-existent spirit babies. Go figure. Now, according to their own articulation, the LDS says this, and this is as clear of an acknowledgement as you're going to get that they actually adhered to Arius. It says, Latter-day Saints do not accept the Christ that emerges from centuries of debates, councils, and creeds. 
Latter-day Saints believe the simplest reading of the New Testament text produces the simplest conclusion. Now, I'm not sure exactly where they get that since they felt the necessity to add a completely new revelation to the New Testament. But again, that's neither here nor there. It says they believe that this conclusion that one is able to reach through the simplest reading of the New Testament, that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are separate and distinct personages. They're borrowing language right out of the Chalcedonian and the Nicene Creed. But then it says this, that they are one in purpose. Now, when I've witnessed to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, this is where they actually try to get off the bus in the conversation, try to shut the conversation down. They said, yes, I know about John 10.30, I and the Father are one, but what he means there is one in purpose. Well, that's true. Jesus and the Father are one in purpose. And so what are you going to do, disagree with that? Well, no, of course not. But the purpose of that statement is not just that they are one in purpose. That's, that's an obvious aspect that you don't even need to read that verse to find out, but that they are one in complete unity in their attributes, in their essence, in their nature. The oneness that's being described here goes far greater than just them having a a singular purpose, but this is how they choose to interpret it. They use a part of the truth to try to make people think that that's all there is. He goes on, the the writer of this, and this comes from the churchofjesuschrist.org. This is their official site. It says, we, the Mormons, feel that the sheer preponderance of references, in other words, the sheer number of references in the Bible, would lead an uninformed reader to the understanding that God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are separate beings. Well, there's as clear an admission that there's a trinity in the Bible as you'll ever find, coming from people who are technically non-Trinitarians, despite the fact that they acknowledge that there's three separate persons because they don't have the same view of unity within the Godhead, and they don't agree with all these things. So don't let them pull you in with this unity that they try to perpetrate. It's not the same unity as it is articulated in Scripture, despite what they're trying to claim here. And they say that is that one must look to the 3rd and 4th century Christian church, not to the New Testament itself, to make a strong case for the Trinity. Now that seems like it's doublespeak, right? Because they say we acknowledge that there's three persons but we don't acknowledge the doctrine of the Trinity. But the way that they say it, they're not trying to come out explicitly against the Trinity in the minds of people who perhaps have never even considered these doctrines. They sound very much like an Orthodox church. They're sort of couching what they're saying in this ambiguous and smoothed over language that says, well, you know, we acknowledge the three persons. We just don't really believe in the Trinity as articulated by the first few centuries of Christian orthodoxy. Well, why is that? Because they're a restoration. So they've gone to the names of the people who were discarded by the church and read their writings, picked up their doctrines, and that's what they believe, despite the fact they've been able to make a rather intriguing potpourri of it that has ensnared millions and millions of people. Back to what I was saying before about how they conceive of Jesus's divinity. This is what they say. We believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Father. And as such, listen to this carefully, inherited powers of godhood and divinity from his Father, including immortality, the capacity to live forever. While he walked the dusty roads of Palestine as a man, he possessed the powers of a god and ministered as one having authority, including power over elements and even power over life and death. So the only reason why Jesus had the same powers that he clearly used to show himself to have the same power as God 
They say, sure, he had the same power as God, but that's because God was his earthly father, conceived as an earthly man. That's how Jesus got these powers, because before that, he was just a spirit baby. God the Father created him a body, he inherited these abilities, and this is how it all comes together. That's significantly different than how the modern church teaches it, and I don't even believe that Arius necessarily taught that. So this is Arianism on steroids. These statements clearly show they believe that Christ was conceived as an individual and did not exist as God prior to this. He existed as a spirit baby, if you remember. Furthermore, the only means by which he possessed the power that he had was because he inherited it from God. Yet that's not according to Scripture. Scripture itself teaches that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, the idea of what God was lost nothing by Christ being equated with it. Christ and God were co-equal in concept. And it says that despite that, when he came here, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He divests himself from those things that would externally identify him as God. In other words, the glory that he had, the, the person in a man's body that showed no evidence externally of being any different than any of the rest of us, right? He was holy God and he was holy man. Now, this is actually saying that Jesus became more when he came to earth. But the Bible says, no, he did not become more. He humbled himself when he came here. He wasn't a spirit baby getting an upgrade, which is how Mormonism teaches it. So this is taught in both John 17, where he talks about the glory that he had with the Father, and Philippians 3, the kenosis, the pouring out. Also, in this, it is clear that Christ is a conceived being, and that as such, he is inherently subordinate to the Father, being his literal physical son. This type of thinking is anthropomorphic. In other words, it takes what people understand about themselves and how we are, and it superimposes it on God using our own terms and our own definitions of words. And it's, it's very indicative of what unsaved people do with texts from Scripture when they try to explain these doctrines. As I stated, they all end up in the weeds, but generally those weeds look pretty much alike. So that's the idea from the LDS, the Mormon Church. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses do much the same thing. Here are some of their tenets, and this comes from a study on religious beliefs. The British Broadcasting Group, BBC, they gathered this information from various denominations, and so they put on their site, they believe in God the Father, whose name is Jehovah, and that he is the only true God. Then they say Jesus Christ is his firstborn son, and they flat out state it, is inferior to God and was created by God. Now, they've got to go take a page out of the Mormon's book because the Mormons are way more smooth in their approach so that they're able to be more open to Christians being drawn in or people who are nominal Christians thinking that these folks are teaching the same things. They're not. The JWs just come right out and say it. The Holy Spirit is not a person. There's a difference between the Mormons and the JWs right there, but it says it is God's active force. God is a single being whose personal name is Jehovah. Now, that's what we spoke about last week, where we talk about the Old Testament depictions of God. It doesn't mean that there is one person who is God. It means there is one God who is manifest in three persons. And that's not just semantics. That actually is a significant difference in meaning and articulation. The Jehovah's Witnesses make it very clear that they think there is just one person who is God, 
And this is, again, this is the Jewish mistake. This is often why I believe that Jehovah's Witnesses are trapped in the Old Testament in a very ironic priesthood in that they still think that there are good works that must be done and that they can be justified by those good works in keeping the Ten Commandments. There's a very strongly Jewish idea that lays behind these things. The same thing with the Mormons. They believe they're the lost tribes of Israel. I'm not trying to be funny. That's what they believe. And their whole Book of Mormon is based on the idea that the Native American tribes are the lost tribes of Israel and that Jesus made a second post-resurrection appearance just to them. This is their teaching. But that being said, these, these systems that are very oppressive, that have a lot of very strange doctrines regarding the Trinity, are often taken from times in the church where the Judeo-Christian tradition was causing immense confusion through the Judaizers and the Greek philosophers. Now, they try to blame that confusion on the church, but they're going back into areas that actually became irrelevant and died out because of the triumph of orthodoxy, largely. Now, they say that Jehovah is alone and above all other beings. Jehovah created everything that exists. Jehovah has a son called Jesus Christ, which they believe was created. They also state, Jesus is not God. Jesus is not equal to God. Jesus was God's first creation. Jehovah created everything else through Jesus Christ. So this is very similar to what Arius himself taught. If you remember that little ditty that I read, he says this, And having fathered such a one, he bore him as a son for himself. The one without beginning established the son as the beginning of all creatures. This is exactly what Arius is teaching. I mean, it's taken right out of his little ditty that he wrote. But he believed that the first act of creation was done by the father, by which the son was created. Then through the son, all other things were created. The problem is that's not in scripture. They're trying to use the verse in Colossians where it says, and he is the firstborn among creation. But that's not what that means. It's not saying that God gave birth to Christ first, and then through Christ, he created all things. He's saying that Christ himself is on an order that is unique from creation as the creator. The, being the firstborn means that he is of primary importance. He is of preeminence, not one among many, but the only one from whom creation has sprung. It's not speaking to him being created by God, but having been the progenitor of creation himself. So that's a whole nother argument, but all of those things are confused by this non-Trinitarian understanding. Now, that's the Jehovah's Witnesses, and their, their section was shorter because they don't try to do so many gymnastics. They just come right out and say it. And we also know that they believe that Jesus Christ is technically Michael the Archangel, which allows him not to be God, but to also be above angels, which it's clear that Jesus Christ was above angels. So they're like, well, how can we figure this out? Well, he has to be an archangel, right? Never mind that archangels are still angels. But nonetheless, when you're dealing with this type of logic or scriptural interpretation, it doesn't really have to make sense beyond a certain point. It only has to get to a certain point so that it fits within the framework that they've already created. And any critical process outside of that, of course, causes you to be anathema to them. Now, there's, an, there's a third entity that I just briefly want to touch on that might be a little surprising. We've touched on it briefly in previous podcasts. This is the defunct organization the Worldwide Church of God. Armstrong, the founder for this, had some very strange views about the Trinity as well. And what's interesting is that the information that I found, refreshingly, is from Grace Community International, which is, at this point, entirely a different entity. We had Kevin King come on and he mentioned this, that the Grace Community International is no longer associated or affiliated with the Church of God, but they are people who came out of that movement. And on their website, 
while I can't endorse it all, because I've not read through it all, and I don't know everything that they've said, but they've gone to a great amount of effort to differentiate themselves entirely as orthodox from the teachings of Armstrong. So one of the things that he speaks of here are 18 truths. So Herbert Armstrong, Herbert W. Armstrong, founds the Church of God, the Worldwide Church of God, and it is his truth from which Grace Community International escaped, and now they seek to differentiate themselves. So in their website, they say, this means that the Trinity doctrine, which limits God to only three beings, a satanic, false, and pagan doctrine designed to deny the truth about the real God family and the plan for humans to enter that family as full God beings who are children of God after the God kind. Now that's that's Herbert's articulation. They're they're outing him with what he would teach. He says the Trinity doctrine didn't come from the Bible, but from Satan, who established the Roman Catholic Church through Simon the Sorcerer by AD seventy. All of Christianity was corrupt and following the ways of Simon the Sorcerer. Now that's not in the Bible, and that's pretty interesting since the Book of Revelation was written after that. But go figure. The Sabbath and Passover were exchanged for pagan Sunday and Easter, even though the Bible says that Easter was on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And in the early AD 300s, ah, listen to this, Dr. Arius, he gives him respect, and other bishops were having to oppose the false trinity idea, but the pagan emperor Constantine had the last say, and the trinity, along with pagan Sunday and Easter Sunday worship, were forced on the church. This is what Herbert was teaching. Now, he's counteracted by them, and their extensive re-examination and condemnation of his errors. And this is one of their statements. It says, Armstrong's assertion that Simon the Sorcerer founded the Roman Catholic Church and his interpretations of the confrontations between Polycarp, Polycrates, and bishops of Rome are historically inaccurate. And I would say that's a great statement, even if it is understated a little bit. In regard to what Herbert taught about who God was, he says this, God is neither one person or the Trinity, God is a family into which we may be born and also become God. Now, this sounds very similar to Mormonism in their pre-existence, that God's up there with all his spirit children. Well, Herbert just sort of flip-flops on that, and he puts the spirit children on the other side of the dividing line. So we're not pre-existent, but we all become gods as part of God's family. So when it talks about children, he is talking about us becoming the homoousia, the same as, in, in essence, in substance, as God. So he denies the idea of the Trinity as pagan and false, and then he says, no, everybody can be like God, which is very similar to what Mormons believe. So it's a strange place to find this kind of thing. But the GCI says this, the testimony of Scripture is that God is one and reveals himself in three distinct personalities. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen teaches we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Our heritage is not to become God, but rather glorified children of God, which is exactly right. Now, to wrap all this up for some clarity, when we started out, I mentioned those two words, homoousia and homoousia. What that means is that there is one essence, one substance. Now, we don't say that we understand what that substance is, nor is that substance a created substance, nor is it material. So I'm making all these qualifications because these are arguments that have been brought against the usage of that word. It's the best way that we could create a concept that confirms what Scripture teaches. And you have to be very careful when that's happening. But this confirms it into saying that the way in which God is one, it's our best way to describe it, is that he is of one essence. That doesn't mean that there's some 
element made of the same thing that's God floating around out there somewhere. What it means is that God's being is not derivative. He, his person, is eternally existent. It is self-sustaining. We have no substance or material or example of anything else like that in the universe. That's what makes him unique. But he wasn't created. And so it's hard for us as created beings to try to find words that really describe him because everything that we use as material or substance or essence has been created. God's essence is uncreated and it is a unique essence. And I hesitate to use the word whatever he is made of because he isn't made of anything and that he's derivative. But the thing of which God's being is comprised is God himself. That's why he says, I am that I am. He was not created. He shares cohesion with nothing other than himself. So again, this is where things get really crazy when you try to contemplate this. Suffice to say, the word homoousia is as close as we can get to say that the reason why the, the way that we understand the oneness of God is that he shares being with all of the other members of the Godhead and that they are all equal in their attributes. They're all equal in their natures. They're all equal in their power. They're equal in their title. However, their roles are not the same as one another. And this is where people get off into the weeds. They think, well, because the roles are not exactly the same, then they must not have the same power. Because there's a chosen order of submission within the Godhead, they must not all be exactly equal with one another. No, that's not the case. Let me just give you an earthly example. When the Bible says that wives ought to submit to their husbands, does that mean that wives are not equal to their husbands in spirituality or in value to God or in personhood or in humanity? Does it mean any of those things? Well, there's been a lot of people through the ages that have tried to make that case, and they're wrong according to Scripture. Submission does not mean inferiority. There's also another passage in the scripture that says that husbands and wives must submit to each other in the fear of God. So that throws that whole argument out the window. The idea of equality is not destroyed by the idea of submission. The chosen order of submission within the Godhead is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In that order. Not because of anything other than their own choice to do so. That is it. There doesn't need to be an arcane explanation by the likes of Arius Joseph Smith, or Charles Russell. None of that needs to happen. Or Herbert Armstrong. Those are all attempts to try to go into an area that's very clearly articulated in scripture and insert man's ideas of the oneness of God in some other way, shape, or form. So homoousia is the best way to get there. Homoousia is not. It just means that they are of similar substance, but they're not necessarily the same. And that has all kinds of theological implications that allow them to differentiate between the deity or the deity hierarchy by means of magnitudes of power, glory, and identity. So when you're getting into the weeds on these conversations, go back to scripture. And remember, they've rejected the decision of orthodox councils in their articulation of Jesus Christ. And it comes down to that. Was this determined by scripture or was it determined by somebody who was found to be lacking in their understanding of scripture and thus excluded from the fellowship of the church? Remember, that's who these groups are following. They've gone back and, quote, restored their teachings at the expense of scripture. Is Jesus God? Yes. Is he a lesser form of God? No. Is Jesus in submission to the Father? Yes. Is he inferior to the Father because of that? No. So what exactly is God? Well, he is supreme. 
God and all that comes with it. Who exactly is God? Well, he's exactly who he declared himself to be. There is simply not another analysis. The way that human beings react to that is, oh, there has to be something, right? But even in our own limited fashion, when we discover something that's considered to be a unique object for which we have no other comparison, we must be content to allow that object to declare itself to us as we study it. And this is what I would submit is the best manner in which to apprehend the truth of how God has revealed himself. He is entirely unique and he cannot be deconstructed. It's not his fault that we have no competent evaluation mechanisms to capture him. That should be expected. Human beings, we're always suspicious when our evaluations don't return the expected results or we can't seem to measure something. But why should it surprise us that the being that created everything cannot be measured by the things that he made? He can be known, but he can't be measured. He's relatable, but not entirely comprehensible. This doesn't mean, however, that those things that he revealed are not intended or able to be understood. As you heard Pastor Skip preach just a few weeks ago in his sermon series, prophecy was given, regardless of its difficulty to be understood, for the purpose that it would actually be known. God has revealed himself so that we might know. And the book of John makes that so clear. These things have I written unto you that you may know. So as far as solutions are concerned, they come from the authority of the word of God. This can be summed up in a verse we spoke about last week. We already mentioned this week, John 10, 30, I and the father are one. And ensuring that when one reads that verse, that they're not allowing a cult to come in and superimpose. No, no, no. That only means one in purpose. No, that's just the surface of what that means. And other scriptures confirm that. One must simply demonstrate as the solution, the co-equality of Christ and the Father in order to address this and thereby rebut their gymnastics and false assertions of, quote, Greek corruption, which is what they always allege, that the Greeks got into the process and fouled it all up. David Wilhite, in his book, The Gospel According to Heretics, throws that out the window and says this, to his credit, after Constantine convened the council, he deferred to bishops themselves and allowed them to proceed largely without his interference. And that is a footnote that says the popular view that Constantine is responsible for enforcing Christian Trinitarian orthodoxy is rightly corrected by Charles Freeman in his book, 8381, Heretics, Pagans, and the Dawn of Monotheistic State. Theodosius is the first emperor to enforce widely and actively what we call orthodoxy. The Arian emperors who preceded him were equally eager to coerce. Few, if any, were playing nice at this time. For an introduction to this phenomenon, see Philip Jenkins, Jesus Wars, how four patriarchs, three queens, and two emperors decided what Christians would believe for the next 1,500 years. And for a more technical and theological introduction, Daniel H. Williams, Constantine, Nicaea, and the fall, in quotes, of the church. So there's plenty of scholarship on this topic. It doesn't mean we endorse everything that you're going to read there, but it means that there's plenty of reasons why the folks who currently hold to these strange anti-Trinitarian views, plenty of information as to why they should change their mind about this. And that's external to Scripture, but Scripture itself, I'll come back to a verse we used last week, and then I'm wrapping it up. Isaiah 45, 23, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. So let this verse make it clear that there is not God the Father, and then there's a little God beside him, or some other version of deity that is a God. That's completely unbiblical. That's polytheism. And yet, even while the Jehovah's Witnesses do away with that in their tenets, they give lip service to it in some way, shape, or form in their description of Christ's role. The Mormons just come right out and embrace it, although their ideas of 
what spirituality is and spiritual existence, the way that they try to get around the idea of the immortal soul is completely unbiblical, let alone the manner in which they depict the way that Christ received his attributes. When God speaks about this in the Bible, he states, I am God, or I am the Lord, and there is none else, referring to the fact that there is not another God. He doesn't say, I am the Father, and there's no one else beside me. In fact, he leaves the door open to that and mentions multiple occupants, the Father and the Son. He mentions the Spirit. We hear, let us make man in our image. The first commandment itself utilizes this terminology, that you should have no other God before me. The idea that you should have no other God before me is not mutually exclusive to the fact that that God is manifest in three separate personalities, persons, not in a modalistic fashion, but in a literal fashion, three actual separate persons who have the same essence and same equality equally occupy the office of God. So when multiple persons who serve together as one God are countenanced in Scripture, it's seamless. There's no need to try to preserve doctrine by wrecking the text to do it. This is a case that these others that we've talked about, Eusebius, Arius, the others, they met the very thing they sought to avoid on the road they took to avoid it. It is the faithful study of Scripture that allows Scripture to speak for itself, not clever mechanics and trying to reconcile man's philosophy with God's. So in closing, the choices that you have about this are the Bible is incoherent and contradictory. That's one way you could look at it. I'm not advocating for that, but that's about the only way you're going to get there if you don't accept this understanding, because you have Christ, you have God, and you have the Spirit mentioned hundreds of times in Scripture. You can say that they're all the same person. That's modalism, and that's not able to be supported by a scrutiny of the text. But ultimately, you end up with Jesus being a fraud, no matter which one of those paths you take. If Jesus wasn't God, he couldn't die for our sins with any efficacy. So it really doesn't matter what else you believe about Jesus. You can't really call yourself a Christian because his teaching was that he was God and not just some other God, which would contradict the Old Testament, which would also make him a fraud and a blasphemer, but that he was God. He was one of the persons of the one God. Or you could always choose to believe that there's a triune God, which is what both the Orthodox Church has done and what everyone else who is Orthodox does, because this is the teaching of Scripture. This is not from Constantine or Greek philosophy. This is the only way to reconcile what Scripture itself teaches. This is the reason why the Jews missed the boat, but it is the reason why the Christians landed in it. And one of the things I can't figure out is why anyone would bother with Jesus at all if he wasn't God, for no other reason than the first commandment, the cult's can't justify that. As we continue to consider the various ancient heresies having been revived in the modern church, and we see the theological effect of that in the three places that we mentioned today, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Worldwide Church of God, now defunct, I hope that it gives you encouragement that when you run into folks who are either still part of a group that's like this or teaches these things, that you'll have the scripture concepts nailed down. You'll have these in your toolbox to show that the Scripture clearly witnesses that Jesus is part of the Godhead, just like the Spirit, just like the Father, and that they are completely in unity all together, and not just one in purpose. So by way of example, I came across a paper in the International Journal of Humanities and Social Science Invention titled, The Aryan Controversy, Its Ramifications and Lessons for the Ghanaian Church. And this is speaking about the church in Ghana, where they had a a controversy between a couple of different apostolic denominations that had to do with healing. 
Now, the gentleman who wrote this paper, I'm unfamiliar with him scholastically, but he's done some work here where he's tried to process the Arian controversy and use it as an example as to why the church should not go to third parties to try to arbitrate their doctrine, that they ought to be able to do it together. But then the manner in which he applied it didn't necessarily make sense. Unfortunately, his conclusion, and the reason I'm reading this is so that you will not come to this conclusion, is that the Arian controversy with its ideas about the differentiations of the Trinity that we've clearly shown the effects of all these hundreds of years later are not to be compared to something as trivial as whether or not a church believes in divine healing, which is how he applied it. And so in the process of us dealing with these these subjects, which can sometimes be highly technical, I don't want you to be discouraged because of the, the density of the subject and thereby relegate it to something that's considered a non-essential doctrine. It's literally these doctrines that determine whether or not someone is an Orthodox Christian who believes the Bible or is in a cult. So these are not small issues, and they really don't have anything to do with whether or not Constantine was involved at the beginning, as we've already read from David Wilhite in his research. So despite the fact that there are people out there who are writing articles and books trying to minimize this type of thing and saying the church ought to just learn to get along and not be divided, this is his conclusion. He says... The council's decisions came with its ramifications of tension, division, and loss of lives in the early church. Thus, one thing that the Ghanaian church can learn is that the dissecting of Jesus Christ with respect to what happened in the early church as captured in this article would not add any soul to God's vineyard, with which, of course, I strongly disagree. With his topic, yes, that's the case. So as you look at this topic, don't forget its importance, as we've mentioned throughout this podcast, the importance of biblical doctrine and sound doctrine. Again, this has been Squawk, and until next time, thank you for listening.